Hello and welcome to the podcast Buffy in the Art of Story Season 5. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today I'll be talking about Season 5, Episode 8, Shadow, where Joyce waits for answers from her brain biopsy and Buffy fights a cobra demon who could reveal the truth about Dawn. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. As to Shadow, while breaking down the episode, I'll talk about three storylines that weave together and fit together so perfectly. A main plot about a demon that reflects Buffy's inner turmoil about her mother, which is Buffy's subplot, and a Riley subplot that intersects with the demon story and Buffy's struggles. Also, character moments that you can read many different ways, adding layers to repeat viewings. And today's foreshadowing section includes a conversation with someone who's a little more Riley friendly than me, Roberta Lip from the Mad Men They Coined It podcast. And speaking of foreshadowing, that is the only place you'll find spoilers, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Shadow originally aired on November 21, 2000. It was written by David Fury and directed by Daniel Atias. Shadow starts when Joyce slides into a CAT scan machine. We quickly cut to Dawn in the waiting area, she twists a bracelet around on her hand, showing her nervousness. This is the opening conflict. That is the conflict that is there to draw in the viewer or reader right away. Sometimes it relates to the main plot, but here it relates to Buffy's subplot of dealing with her feelings about Joyce's illness and vulnerability which is reflected really well in the main plot that we'll get to. For now, Buffy brings soda. Dawn asks, why is it called a cat scan? Is there a cat involved? Buffy starts to become impatient with her questions, but catches herself and puts her arm around Dawn, who leans back against Buffy. It's such a nice moment for the two of them. And we can see how distressed Dawn is and how comforted she is by Buffy. At 1 minute 36 seconds in, we cut to the magic box where Tara tells Giles that his new Yellow Pages ad for the shop is catchy in a, quote, hard to read sort of way, end quote. So fun to look back at the days of Yellow Pages ads for those of you who don't remember. That was the way that people found your business in the phone book. And the ad includes something about your one-stop shop, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Anya just wants to know if her name is in the ad. It's not. And Xander complains that when a person makes a, quote, destroy all vampires date, end quote, it's rude to not wait for your code destroyers, referring back to what Riley did in the last episode. Giles has been busy mouthing the words to his ad. So when Xander asks if he agrees, Giles is very honest and says, I'm almost certain you're not, but to be fair, I wasn't listening, which could also sum up a lot of the conversations in the world today. 
Xander explains that they were supposed to take on a tomb full of vampires with Riley this morning, but Captain America blew it up all by his lone wolf lonesome. Anya, though, was glad to avoid the conflict. She didn't want to start her day with a slaughter, which she says just shows how much she's grown. This all is a nice minor bit of conflict to remind viewers what happened with Riley last time, where he went off on his own and took a lot of risks to confront the vampire who staked Buffy. And this sets the stage for the episode subplot and continues his season arc. Giles asks for their help delving more into Buffy's mystery woman, and they all gather again at the table full of books. Xander comments how useful it is trying to look up something you never saw and don't know the name of. He guesses that this woman is lurking around some sewer or rat-infested tunnel, the kind of places that villains haunt. So, of course, we cut to Glory's mansion. She's trying on expensive shoes. She's half lying, half sitting on a bed. A minion in a monk-like robe, whose name is Dreg, tells her that the spell on the scroll he's holding in his worthless scabby hand is a gift for her. He's kneeling. She tells him, get up. Her neck hurts from looking down at him. He begs her forgiveness, says she should rip out his tongue. She says, gimme, and gestures, and poor Dreg inches up to her, sticks out his tongue, but to his relief, she just grabs the scroll. Now, this raises a question uh, that I will continue to have about why do these minions follow Glory? She is so horrible to them. Dreg tells her the incantation that's on the scroll was lost for eons, but she interrupts to ask if this pump makes her ankle look bony. Dreg waxes rapturous about her ankle and thanks her for throwing her shoe at him and then for speaking his name. She's irritated with all his toadying. All she wants is for him to be clear. Will the spell work? Drake tells her she needs some other items, and she says she'll get them as she tears out the magic box ad. At 4 minutes 50 seconds, in we go to credits. And what we just saw right about 10% through the episode was the story spark or inciting incident. That is the plot point that gets the main plot rolling, and it usually is around 10% in most stories. Though lately in the Buffy episodes, it has been coming sometimes much earlier, sometimes much later, I think due to the many season arcs that we're telling. So this episode is really tightly structured in itself, even as it moves along a number of season storylines. Oh, and I should say what the spark was. It was Glory getting that scroll that has this incantation on it that will drive the main plot. We come back from credits at 5 minutes 51 seconds in. It's a sunny day and Riley is knocking on Buffy's door and not getting an answer. He goes in and sees Spike's blanket over the banister, goes upstairs and catches Spike in Buffy's bedroom. Spike is standing there smelling Buffy's sweater. He tries to act nonchalant. It's a predator thing, quote, nothing wrong with it. End quote. He needs to know his enemy's scent, which he now says is bitter and aggravating. 
Riley doesn't buy it. He drags him out and doesn't notice that Spike grabs a pair of Buffy's panties from a partly open drawer as he leaves the room. Downstairs, Spike tells Riley he knows for a fact Buffy wouldn't mind him being there. Riley doesn't believe that either. Spike is Buffy's enemy. And Spike says something like, oh yeah, is she in the habit of buying her enemies drinks? And tells Riley that last night Buffy did just that, which Riley also doesn't buy. So we know that Buffy never told Riley that she planned to grill Spike about how he killed the two slayers and didn't call to tell him what she learned. Spike also points out that twice now Buffy has had Willow do spells to keep out certain vampires. And why does Riley think that Spike's not on that list? Riley argues it's because Spike is harmless and Spike says takes one to no one and at least he still has an attitude and he taunts Riley by saying, quote, what you got, the piercing glance, end quote. Spike goes on that Buffy has a type, dangerous, rough, bumpy in the forehead region, and Riley is just not dark enough. So he is hitting Riley exactly where he's vulnerable because Riley's already jealous of Angel and Dracula, and he feels so much less powerful now, and he doesn't have his military guy cachet anymore. Riley holds Spike outside in the sun and lets him sizzle and says he's the one who knows what Buffy needs. And Spike asks, oh, is that why Riley's at the hospital now, giving Buffy what she needs? This causes Riley to pull Spike back into the house and demand to know what he's talking about. Spike seems genuinely surprised that Buffy didn't tell Riley that Joyce is at the hospital and that Dawn went too. Then Spike goes snarky again and comments that it's funny Buffy didn't call Riley. Spike knew since last night. Not surprisingly, Riley throws him out of the house into the sun again, but he does throw the blanket after him. We're at 8 minutes 52 seconds in. Riley finds Buffy standing outside the consulting room door. She hugs him. She's very glad he's there, clearly. And she says until she knew what it was, and he tells her it's okay. This is an example for me of how your personal experience can inform your viewing of a story. I really identified with Buffy here and didn't take this as shutting Riley out because decades ago uh, when my dad was 78, my mom called and told me that he was having some tests and she really downplayed it, that it was a stress test and, and probably he would just need medication, that he had had some chest pains, but they weren't very strong and it was a precaution. And she wasn't going to tell my brothers. And I was talking to someone at work who said, you know, your dad could end up having to have open heart surgery. That's very serious. Your brothers probably should know. And don't you want to go to the hospital and be there? I called my brothers and I just showed up at the hospital, first at the wrong hospital, because my mom hadn't said which one and I assumed. And I got there and my mom was really grateful I was there. And The reason she didn't tell me is she was so worried about my dad and it made it real to her if she said to me he might end up having surgery, which he did, and he came through fine, but it made her more anxious to say it out loud. And so 
I kind of put that onto Buffy and didn't see it as Buffy shutting Riley out. But what I didn't notice until breaking it down for this episode is that Buffy also left Riley out of the loop on her going to talk to Spike. It's not like she needed his permission to talk to Spike about finding out how he killed the two slayers, but it's the sort of thing you would think she might talk through with him or at least tell him about partly because he was so concerned about that vampire almost killing her. For now though, Riley is pretty supportive and at least outwardly not taking it too personally. Buffy is about to go find out the results of Joyce's scan, so she asks Riley to sit with Dawn. When Buffy enters the room, the doctor is telling Joyce he'll check on the OR. The CAT scan films are on the wall. Joyce tells Buffy that the scans show a shadow, so they need a biopsy to see what it is. Buffy and Joyce hug, and Joyce tells her the doctor says it's too early to be concerned. And Buffy says, right, no concern. And Joyce says, right, just a shadow. And Buffy looks at the scans, and we cut to Willow saying, I just wish we knew what we were dealing with. A really nice segue, as we saw in some previous episodes, that line applies to the scans and to the friend's frustration at not finding anything in the books on this mystery woman. Tara suggests maybe there isn't anything in the books. Maybe she's not a demon or sorceress or spirit or whatever the books cover. She could be something else altogether. But not, she clarifies, something new, something old, so old it predates the written word. Willow then remembers the Dagon Sphere and that it was created to repel that which cannot be named. Giles comments that then they are blind. They have no way to determine her moves, her habits, where she'll turn up next. And as he speaks, he turns around and Glory stands right there holding supplies she wants to buy. So we're at 11 minutes, 55 seconds in, a little past a quarter way through the episode. And Glory buying these supplies is that first major plot turn. That typically comes a quarter way through from outside the protagonist, so here nothing to do with Buffy, spins the story in a new direction, which it will because it'll be about stopping Glory, and raises the stakes, and we'll find out that is exactly what this does. For now, though... Giles smiles as Glory walks off, and then he turns back to the others at the table and says she could be anywhere. At 12 minutes 43 seconds in, Dawn sleeps across chairs in the waiting area at the hospital, and Riley covers her with his coat. Buffy sits nearby, and she leans on him when he joins her. But when the doctor comes out to give Buffy the news, Riley hangs back. It's not clear why... And it's another very quick moment I don't think that I noticed. You just see Buffy alone with the doctor and Riley back there a little blurry. And until now, I didn't think about does he think she doesn't want him? If he had stepped up with her, would it matter? The doctor tells Buffy it's a brain tumor and his voice fades as he gives her technical details and the camera closes up on her face. 
I see this as the first major plot turn of Buffy's subplot because now we know for sure it's something very serious. When we return from the commercial, the doctor continues giving Buffy tons of information, asking her a lot of questions. You can see that she's overwhelmed and he tells her they can't do much until they know if the tumor is operable and they're working on that. Buffy asks if she can help. He talks about literature, other treatments, and somewhere in there tells her that one out of three patients does just fine. Ben, the intern, interrupts to tell the surgeon he's needed in the ICU. After he leaves, we find out that was a ruse to give Buffy a break, but he reassures her that the surgeon is really good. Joyce is in good hands. The doctor just doesn't have great bedside manner. Buffy says he was just telling me there's nothing I can do. Ben tells her the same thing. Joyce will be unconscious for six or seven hours. Buffy should get some air, take a break. Buffy hugs Riley and tells him she has to go do something like magic or a healing spell. Riley doesn't think magic can help, and Buffy says that attitude's not helping. I have to try. She asks him to take Dawn to school. She also tells him to tell Dawn that they don't have any answers yet. At 18 minutes, 21 seconds in, at the magic box, Anya looks through paper receipts and says, hey, hey, and increases her volume and shrillness the next two times until the others respond. She says Giles sold an amulet and bloodstone together and asks if he's stupid. Xander reminds Anya of employee-employer vocabulary no-nos. Anya tells Giles, you never sell these things together. Doesn't he know about the Sobakites? Willow and Tara do. They chime in that this particular amulet is a transmorgification conduit. So in the last episode, the DVD commentary, David Fury said part of the Buffy Giles scenes about the previous Slayers being killed showed that Giles can't help Buffy as much anymore. And I didn't necessarily read it that way, but now I can see a little more of that overall in this season because here Anya knows you can't sell those two things together, which Giles didn't think about, and Willow and Tara know more about some other things than Giles. Giles says the Sobekian spells were lost long ago, so he's not worried. And anyway, the young woman he sold them to would have to have enormous power to use them. And Willow says, young woman. And it dawns on all of them that it must have been that woman that Buffy's looking for. We cut to Riley and Dawn. They're sitting on a bench watching a carousel go round and round. Riley bought Dawn ice cream. She's glad he's there with her and tells him about Joyce renting the carousel for Dawn's 10th birthday for her and her friends, but they just moved to Sunnydale, so it was only Dawn, Buffy, and Joyce riding around and around for an hour so they got their money's worth. And Dawn then says, she's not going to get better, is she? Riley reassures her that Joyce will. Summer's women are tough. And I love that answer from Riley because he gives her a reason and he doesn't downplay the seriousness. Dawn says Buffy is glad Riley's around too and tells him Buffy cries a lot less with Riley than with Angel. 
With Angel, everything was all, my boyfriend's a vampire, every day's the end of the world, and says, she doesn't get all worked up like that over you. Riley looks stricken. Dawn then puts the nail in the coffin by saying, she thinks Riley's been really good for Buffy. We've reached the midpoint of the episode, and typically here in a strong story, you see either a protagonist making a major commitment, vowing to pursue the quest and throw all in, or suffering a major reversal. Here, there isn't a single commitment or reversal at the midpoint, but we do see in each of these plots and subplots that happening. A little bit before the midpoint, Buffy suffered a major reversal, though she didn't know it, when Giles sold Glory what she needed to do her spell. Buffy also, in a moment, is going to suffer a major reversal in her subplot because her friends will tell her there is no mystical cure. There really is nothing Buffy can do. And Riley just suffered a major reversal because to him, Dawn just confirmed what he has been fearing, that Buffy does not have the depth of feeling for him that he wants. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story and want to help ensure that it continues and you'd like to get some bonus content, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Some of the bonus content that is already there waiting for you is a breakdown of Angel, the series, the pilot episode, a look at Buffy's story compared with the lone hero narrative, and an extended conversation about Riley, Dawn, season five, The Gift, between Roberta Lip, co-host of They Coined It, and me. If you subscribe at the $5 and up level, you'll also get a digital copy of Buffy and the Art of Story, Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy. If you'd like to help out the podcast some other way, you can post a review on social media or share an episode or tell a friend about it who loves Buffy. You can also connect or comment on episodes on Twitter or Instagram. Look for me at Lisa M. Lilly or on the Buffy in the Art of Story Facebook page. So at 22 minutes, two seconds in, Buffy tells Giles and her friends there must be a mystical cure. They all, one way or another, haltingly tell her that mystical and medical aren't meant to mix. Too much can go wrong and the human mind is very delicate. They can make things worse. Now Buffy learns about the reversal in the main plot, though she doesn't quite know what it means yet. Anya says they've already done just about enough to make things worse. The others try to downplay it. First, they pretend that Anya broke something, and Anya so reluctantly goes along that it's obvious they're hiding something. When Buffy demands to know what, they tell her about the cult of Sobek, that they're reptile worshippers, and that transmorgifying is changing a living thing into another living thing. So they can expect a new monster, but they don't know what it's for or what it 
does. Buffy decides she's going to go kill the monster while they figure it out. So there is a bit of a commitment to the quest there. They try to stop her, worried because the last time Buffy faced this woman, the woman trounced her. But Buffy can't just sit there. She says, I have to do something. This is the refrain for Buffy in this episode. And it is part of the conflict between her and Riley. He wants her to lean on him and really feel her emotions and let him help her with them. But what Buffy needs is to fight something. It is significant that Buffy also doesn't include Riley in this fight when he could be helpful. So she's not only not turning to him as much as he wants her to for emotional comfort, she's keeping him out of the fighting. At 26 minutes, 13 seconds in, Glory breaks a cobra out of a glass case at the zoo, puts it in a vase, and with the help of a minion, starts the spell to raise Sobek, the reptile demon. Buffy attacks Glory. She gets in some pretty good punches, but Glory gets the upper hand as the minion keeps chanting. Glory eventually flings Buffy into that snake case. Buffy manages to slink away as Glory focuses on the demon. I have this note in my outline that just says arms because that demon is probably one of uh, the ones where it is most obvious that Buffy just did not have a budget to create really scary demons. It does look less like a snake to me and more like a giant lizard and it has these tiny little alligator arms and glowy eyes it's a little scary and very campy sort of a a scary geico gecko Buffy is already gone when Glory tells Sobek to see what is unseen and to find the key and then return and tell her where it is so we have some dramatic irony here where the audience knows what Sobek is doing and what a danger the reptile demon poses because he's looking for the key but Buffy doesn't know yet so that creates a lot of tension and we get a little humor because the demon is fascinated by what Glory is saying but it's not going anywhere and she says now would be good and it finally takes off. Riley comes to the magic box and can't believe the others let Buffy go after the monster and the woman alone. And Giles points out let isn't really a factor when she sets her mind to something. When Riley goes on about how crazy it was, Xander says, yeah, crazy, going off alone, half cocked, instead of waiting for much needed backup, charging him with a big old hand grenade. Oh, wait. Riley claims this is different. And Xander says it is. Buffy needs something she can fight. And I say good on Xander for recognizing that and not blaming Buffy for it. But he says, what's Riley's deal? And he also asks, is Riley all right? Riley's pretty sulky and he says he's just a little crazed and heads for the door. Glances back and says, if uh, she needs me. And he trails off and walks out. And this is where the the first time around that I, I was writing my notes, I said, boo-hoo, Riley. People grieve differently. At 29 minutes, 34 seconds in, Sobek checks different places for the key, including a church. Buffy calls the magic box. She's at a hospital payphone. She's filching ice packs from a cart for her injuries. She tells Giles it was a big thing that was raised, and she doesn't know why. 
She also tells him that Joyce is going to wake up soon, so Buffy will stay at the hospital. Giles assures her he'll keep Dawn safe at the shop. There's really nothing else she can do for Joyce. At 31 minutes, 30 seconds in, there's a slow montage of Buffy alone in the waiting area, Riley sitting alone at the demon bar, Dawn at a table at the magic box studying alone. Then Vampire Sandy joins Riley. Buffy is in the hospital room with Joyce and the doctor. There's no sound, just music, but we see the doctor speaking and Joyce's reaction and then Buffy's face. She's sitting next to Joyce in the hospital bed. And it's so much more powerful in that scene to not have the words. We know it's bad news. We know from their reactions. And sometimes that can bring out so much more for a viewer or the reader to have your audience fill in the blanks and do the emotional work. We cut to Riley dancing with Sandy and he offers his neck to her. She bites him. He holds her, but then he stakes her and she looks so shocked. I feel sorry for her. All of that was about three quarters through the episode, typically where we see the last major plot turn, which grows from the midpoint and takes the story in yet another new direction. And here we have it in the main plot. Sobek was raised and starts looking for the key. So that grows from that midpoint reversal where Glory got everything she needed. And Buffy was not able to stop that from happening. It's also a turn in Buffy's subplot. She learns that the biopsy was bad news and that there's nothing she can do other than be there to help her mom and that her mom is going to need her a lot more. And it is just the opposite of everything Buffy's trying to do in this episode. She can't fight this. She can't help defeat the tumor. And then poor Riley feeling left out. It's a big turn for him because he's not just crying in his beer and feeling sorry for himself, but he's actually letting this vampire bite him. And this is the antithesis of his whole initiative vibe in more than one way. First, to let her bite him, and then that he stakes her. Because other than what we saw with Forrest, who, who got angry at the demon's For the most part, Riley, Graham, even Professor Walsh, they were not personal about it. They didn't seem to feel personally attacked by these demons that were physically attacking them. They saw it as a a job, as an important thing that they were doing to corral these demons, but it, it wasn't something to be vindictive about. And Riley definitely stakes Sandy out of anger because we don't have any evidence that she was out killing anyone or feeding on unwilling victims. At 33 minutes, 12 seconds in, Sobek, his eyes glowing, checks more and more places, and Buffy enters the magic box. Giles is yawning, which tells us it's pretty late. Dawn and Buffy hug. Buffy tells her Joyce is awake but says we'll see when Dawn asks if they can take her home. So it's clear Buffy isn't giving Dawn the information. Buffy asks about reptile sightings and the others tell her there were none. So of course Sobek bursts in. He rears up. He uses one of those little arms to knock over a shelf. And at first I thought the demon was being a little spiteful and the writers were having a little fun with it. But the shelf 
knocks Buffy over and pins her to the ground. The demon goes straight for Dawn and rears up on its tail so they're sort of standing face to face. Dawn screams as they stare into each other's eyes. Sobek's eyes glow and it roars, then turns around and slithers away. So this too could be that last major turn in the demon plot because now Sobek has found Dawn. So that is more dramatic than Glory simply raising Sobek. So while this is a little late, you could see that as the last major plot turn. And we cut to a commercial. At 35 minutes, 10 seconds in, we return from the commercial. Xander rushes to Dawn to ask if she's okay, and Willow asks why the big snake was afraid of Dawn. Off to one side, Buffy says to Giles only, it knows, and races out after the snake. The snake is not super fast, but it's pretty far ahead of Buffy. She runs after it. Giles pulls around the corner in his little red convertible. She hops in and they chase the demon. It knocks over a garbage dumpster, shoving it into their way. And as they go around it, Buffy tells Giles she has to stop the snake before it gets back to Glory. And Giles says Glory, and Buffy tells him that's what she heard the minion call the woman. So now the gang will know Glory's name. At the mansion, Glory throws things at Dreg, demanding to know where the demon snake is. And she says, does anyone appreciate that I'm on a schedule? Tick-tock, drag, tick frickin' talk. Which is such a fun call out to the ticking clock device. Always a good way to set tension that there is a time limit either on what the hero must do to save the day or when the villain must accomplish their task. So this sets the clock for the season, though we don't know exactly when that clock is going to go off. I think this works so well because it completely fits Glory to say the tick-tock thing and it emphasizes it for the audience. So we are nearing the climax where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve it. Here these forces are Buffy and Sobek, but also Buffy and her inner struggle with her mom's illness and the diagnosis and danger to Joyce. And those come together so wonderfully in the climax. Riley, I think, has already had his for his subplot. It was staking Sandy. And while Sandy wasn't the antagonist, I see it as Riley confronted his inner demons and lost. He confronted his feelings about Buffy, accepted his belief that she doesn't love him as being true, and his feelings about himself, about feeling less powerful, about not having a place in the world, Spike's taunts about him not being dark enough. He confronted all of that and wasn't able to deal with it in a healthy way, so he staked Sandy, and that was the climax. At 37 minutes, 6 seconds in, Sobek, the snake demon, bursts through a chain link fence. Buffy jumps out of the car and runs in after him, going around a picnic table. And throughout this chase scene, the writers have used obstacles to keep it interesting. Earlier, the snake demon had to weave around cars. Then it shoved that garbage uh, dumpster bin in the way of Buffy and Giles' car. Buffy is out of the car, in the car 
car, out of the car, the fence is knocked down. Now the snake dodges around rocks and Buffy has to as well. Buffy grabs a handy chain and wraps it around Sobek as she's on its back fighting it. Finally, its eyes grow dark, it stops roaring, and then stops moving and sags. And we buy, as Buffy does, that it's dead because this was a pretty extended struggle. But as soon as she lets down her guard and drops the chain, Sobek rears back and throws her off. Now she fights it face to face and punches it until it truly dies. At 38 minutes, 40 seconds in, its tail drops. Buffy has prevailed over the monster antagonist and we know it's dead. Now we're moving to the falling action part of the plot where the story ties up loose, ends, and resolves subplots. Often we shift to a new scene, but here the scene flows from the climax right into falling action for Buffy because Sobek is dead. We know he's dead. Buffy maybe even knows he's dead, but she keeps punching and punching. She needs something to fight. And this is part of the falling action of her subplot of her feelings about Joyce. It is frustration. It's anger. It's grief. And it's Buffy accepting that she cannot do anything to fight that tumor. The camera pans back. We get a long shot of her punching. You can see her desperation and how out of control she is. At 38 minutes, 54 seconds in, we see Glory in the window of her mansion, staring out, looking for Lorne as she peers into the darkness, recognizing Sobek is not returning. The way this was filmed is really cool because the pan goes all the way back and we see Glory. So it's all in one shot from close up to Buffy to backing off to Glory. But it did confuse me a little the first time I watched the episode because I thought at first that Glory was close enough to look out on that park and see Buffy and it didn't make sense to me that she would just stand there watching. And then I realized, oh, She's just looking out into the night. She's she's not near that park, although it must have been on the way to Glory's mansion. We cut to Joyce and Buffy in the hospital room. Joyce has a bandage on her head. Her hair is messed up, and she asks Buffy, does she have bed hair? Because Dawn's about to come in, and Joyce is worried she looks like Scary Mom. Buffy reassures her. Joyce wants to talk to Dawn alone, but tells Buffy to stay close. Joyce lies in bed. She's looking up at Buffy and looks so vulnerable and distraught. And Buffy is standing over her so much of a role reversal, so much of Buffy being the parent. Buffy lets Dawn in, steps into the hallway. Riley is there. He joins her. He's wearing a turtleneck. And he asks if she's okay because she looks pretty beat up. Buffy nods. She's holding back tears but says, minimal damage of the fighting kind. It's all the other kind. He holds her, tells her it's okay, just let it out. But after a moment, she pulls back and says she can't. Quote, they need me. If I start now, I won't be able to stop. End quote. He reaches out to touch her face, but Joyce calls Buffy's name, and she turns away, goes into the hospital room, and shuts the door behind her. The camera pans back on Riley standing there alone, looking sad for himself. This pan back emphasizes his isolation, and we go 
to credits. So more on Riley in the foreshadowing section in that conversation between me and Roberta Lip, as well as some of my own separate comments. Other than foreshadowing, that is it for this episode. If you're not staying for the foreshadowing section, which includes spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, Listening to Fear, where an alien demon arrives from outer space and threatens Joyce. If you find the story structure I talk about here helpful and want to apply it to your own writing, you might find my audiobooks useful. Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel. Also, The One-Year Novelist, A Week-by-Week Guide to Writing Your Novel in One Year. You can get them wherever you buy audiobooks, Or you can ask your local librarian to order either one for you, or they may already have them available. Both Super Simple Story Structure and The One-Year Novelist are also available in workbook and ebook formats. There are links in the show notes at writingasasecondcareer.com under Books on Writing or at lisalilly.com under Nonfiction. And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. This is, I was going to say the beginning of the end for Buffy and Riley, but it's more like the middle of the end because Riley, after this, will start paying vampires to bite him. And he'll tell Buffy it's because it makes him feel needed or wanted in a way that Buffy doesn't. And we can see that theme throughout this episode Riley's feeling that Buffy doesn't need him she does physically lean on him a number of times but she also does leave him out of things quite a bit as well the episode also clearly foreshadows Joyce's death those scenes of her on her back being taken into the cat scan lying on the hospital bed very uh, evocative of that moment when Buffy finds her lying on the couch after she died the episode also foreshadows how much Buffy is going to need to do both for Joyce and after Joyce dies and it hints at how she'll handle things with Dawn in the same way that she's not telling Dawn what's going on now to protect her after Joyce dies Buffy will feel like she's got to handle everything she's got to be the grown-up and for her that means not telling Dawn how devastated she is which leaves Dawn feeling isolated and alone in her grief. Which brings me back to that last scene with Riley feeling isolated and alone in the hospital hallway. So I wanted to get some balance because I feel like I am more negative on Riley than than perhaps a lot of viewers are. So that is why I asked Roberta Lip, a co-host of the They Coined It Mad Men podcast, 
to talk with me about Riley. And Roberta is also a huge Buffy fan, and I'm a huge Mad Men fan. So here is our conversation about Riley. So, Roberta, I think that you are a little more Riley positive than I am. So I would like to get your take on, well, among other things, why why do you think Riley believes Buffy doesn't really love him? Or just doesn't love him. No okay. qualification. Just doesn't love him. That's no, that and that is true. And that is a little bit of a stronger statement. So I, I just wanna I let me just qualify that I am more Riley positive. Listening to your take on Riley has been interesting in in just bringing in like this negative view of him. I mean, I know people hate him, but you've brought in a people hate him like, but I think people hate him for Buffy. And and that's not what you've been saying. You've been calling out some like misogynistic traits and this and that. And you're not wrong when some sometimes I've agreed with you and sometimes I've been like, eh, I think you that was a little too harsh. So there's that piece of it. The other thing is, I have to say, and I'm going through this somewhat with with Mad Men as well, although your creator has been called out on more stuff than my creator has. Right. Okay. Yeah. If we're going to have a contest. <laughs> you know, that's right. <laughs> it's everybody loses. But looking at the men, looking at the frat boys, looking at the Xander uh, and Riley through the eyes of a borderline incel. Let's just like put him on that side of the shelf, even though that's- Are right, we talking about Xander now? Well, I'm talking about Joss. Oh, our creator. Yes. Right. Yes. So, you know, from the mind of somebody who- really, really pissed off that the nice guy never wins. Yeah. So that's who created Riley. Now, you've got all these great women writers, too, supporting the whole thing. But I just wanted to set all that. That's a great point. I had thought about Xander from that perspective, but I had not really thought about Riley that way. Though I did read, it wasn't Joss Whedon, but it was another of the writers saying something about, well, we tried to give Buffy a nice guy, but the viewers didn't like him. Which is ultimately, that's right. That's what happened. That and the fact that Joss knows the best Buffy is a miserable There's Buffy. that too. There isn't, if you're trying to give her a good, healthy relationship, there isn't a lot of drama there. And it's not as yeah. exciting. Yeah. What are they going to do? Give a, give her a good boyfriend in season four and then that's it? <laughs> right. And her mom dies? Bummer. Like that's, yeah, it doesn't work. So I liked him. From the beginning. I liked him from the jump. I liked his kind of relaxed ability to accept her quirkiness. I think where it turns is, is again, and again, this would be the, you know, the sort of Joss angle of that he, he just couldn't get over. He just, what's the phrase? He just turned into a big poopy pants about. <laughs> yeah, that's the phrase. Once he lost his power. I, there is a, there's an actual like culturally happening phrase that I'm not thinking of. <laughs> um, but but, you know, it really is like he's just turned into kind of a dirty diaper about about that she's stronger than him. And I don't think that was I think that was imposed on him to start to decompensate the relationship. I think so, too. And I feel like my early view of Riley is so colored by knowing that's coming that mm. it it's hard to see the great things about Riley. And in the last episode, I noticed that. He he was very, hey, Buffy, why don't we take care of each other? You, you don't need to take care of me. You don't need to watch out for me, except that let's watch out for each other. And I thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I feel similarly that they need something 
to send Riley away, and that's what yeah. they settled on, at least to some extent, that he can't deal with her getting stronger while he feels weaker. Initially, I just see kind of Riley as pretty chill and and just good. And then, you know, again, he sort of breaks down, and you find out that half of his being chill was medication. Who knows? Like, who knows? Who knows? But right. he was chill, and he was easy about her. And then I bought into the kind of romanticism of even that when he does say like, but she doesn't love me. I was like, oh, and you're the one who points out she never says it. I never noticed that. And that's like, I mean, that's that's not a mistake. The writers didn't forget to have her say it. You know, that's a, a big line to never have Buffy say, I love you. She definitely was selfish inside that relationship. She definitely was like, he's there for me. I'm good. I'm going to. Ignore him. The way she sort of ignored her friends when she first got with him, she started to ignore him. And and I struggle with that because they a lot of that in the story comes in the context of her mom being ill. And the more I think about it, the more when we're super stressed and, and in distress like that, whatever it is about our personalities, I think we kind of double down on our coping strategies. And Buffy's is okay, I got to be in control of everything. I got to handle everything. There's got to be something to fight here, which doesn't leave a lot of room for anybody, including Riley, but maybe especially Riley, to be there emotionally for her. She just kind of shuts down, shuts that down. No, she definitely really shut him out. You've you've got a rock of a boyfriend and you don't include him in, I'm going to the hospital, I'm worried about my mom. Like, I mean, I think that is a pretty good indication that she was checked out of that relationship beyond being distracted about her mother. You know, you really do. You can, you can, you can imagine it. You're holding his hand while you're talking to the doctor. You're, he should have been more there for her. And that was her fault. I struggle with it a little because, you know, you know, my parents died in a really tragic way. And what I valued was the people who kind of didn't ask anything of me and were just like, what can I do? And sometimes that what I needed most was those practical things like what Buffy asks Riley to do. On the other hand, I didn't have a, a primary romantic partner at that point. I had wonderful friends who just did so much to help support me. I don't know what it would have been like to have that person who could be there for the emotional support. And so part of me thinks, oh, Buffy feels the way I did. Just help me get through the day. Like, I just don't, I can't be there for you. But then I think, yeah, I really wished I had that one person. Yeah, I mean, actually what I'm picturing for her is actually what ends up happening with Angel at the funeral. Yes, you're right. Right? Like, that's literally the visual I'm picturing is just big Riley standing behind her while she's dealing and he's asking nothing of her. And there was Angel. Perfect. One of the most beautiful moments, right? Like, just, ugh. I hadn't thought about the comparison, but it's a really good one because Riley, I think, would love to have done totally. that for Buffy. But she either never could say, hey, here's what I need, or he, I mean, he did try, and she just, it was almost like he wasn't there. No, it it was a legitimate indicator that she's not as into him as he is to her. He he discovers it maybe a little bit earlier than what happens with her mom. But ultimately, if you don't want your boyfriend with you for any of it, if you're not including him, it is, and you're right, there's a whole task list. People, when people are grieving, when people are getting to whatever, whichever stage of it, you, you just need shit done. And sometimes you don't need to be asked. It's just like, here's a peach. 
Right. Someone who Thank just you. says, "I let me take care of this. Yes. There is food in your house, you know, whatever. Thank you again, Roberta. I had such a great time talking with you. And I will be including some more of Roberta's and my conversation in future episodes. But if you want to hear the entire conversation and you're a patron, you can hear that on Patreon or on my website. You'll get the password to that. If you're not a patron yet, it's a great time to subscribe so that you can hear that extra content. In the conversation with Roberta, I walked back a bit my feelings about Riley's reaction to Buffy grieving because until I talked with Roberta and then broke down the episode, I really did feel great frustration with Riley and I feel like some of it is an accurate reflection of how grieving can pull people apart because we all handle grief differently. And I felt like Riley was not recognizing that. And I was uncertain if the writers were recognizing that. Another example from my life, because this episode and so much of this season speaks to how you can watch this show multiple times and find different things in it. And when I watched this after my parents were killed, I so identified with Buffy. There was a time when my dad was in the hospital for about six weeks, and I really saw that difference in how people handle things and grieve because I felt this need to just handle everything. I was also there for my dad. I sat with him. It meant a lot to me to be there with him, though he didn't always know that I was there. And while it was hard, it probably helped me emotionally. And one of my brothers, I call and tell him dad took a turn for the worse or whatever it was, something where I would be in the car in a second to come over and and he was very reluctant and I couldn't understand it. You know, I knew he loved my dad. It was very clear that things were dire, but years later he told me he just couldn't handle it emotionally. His daughter, my niece, died only two years before and it just took him back, just the smell of the hospital, everything, and it was overwhelming for him. And at the time, one of my friends said, well, you've got to explain to your brother how bad this is he needs to be there and I didn't understand what was happening but I knew enough to know that if he couldn't be there 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 was a reason and I needed to respect that in contrast uh, my other brother always turned up was always there um, seemed very calm and told me later that Yeah, he was calm and he kept marveling at how he didn't feel all that much or he didn't feel that bad. And that's because he just was blocking it out. And a couple years later, he had to go through a whole grieving process. Not that you ever really finish grieving, but all the depth of emotion that I felt at the time, he felt years later. 
So watching this, watching Riley, uh, that's where I had the boohoo Riley feeling of boohoo Riley, Buffy needs to deal with this in a way that makes her feel better. If she needs to be alone with her mom and her sister, that's what she needs. Maybe respect that and don't take it personally. Then I talked to Roberta, saw her point about how much Buffy shuts Riley out, rewatched this episode, and initially thought, no, I was right. She just needs to grieve how she needs to grieve. And then as I broke down this episode and outlined it, it hit me how many other ways, even in this episode alone, Buffy shuts Riley out out not telling him about her plan to talk to spike about how did he kill the slayers not telling him even that joyce is going to the hospital not enlisting his aid in at least figuring out what this monster is i understand she wanted to take off fight the monster but she could have said to giles hey tell riley to meet me or tell riley what's going on like she she shuts him out of everything So I understand a little more that the grieving is just the most obvious way that he is shut out and it's it's the most visual way that the writers show us that how he feels in that hallway alone but if it was only that Buffy needed something different while grieving probably they could have gotten through that and bridged that gap but it emphasizes all the other things going on plus all of Riley's interferes interferes and his um lack of place in the world and things that he needs to work out for himself. So that is it for the episode. Thank you again for listening. Please come back next time in two weeks for Listening to Fear, where Joyce prepares for brain surgery as a dangerous alien stalks her. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Story or lisalilly.com slash YouTube. You can also comment on the episodes, share them, or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. And you can find book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved.